Today, we're going to start with the end. We're going to start with the end. Let's pray. Father, as we come to your word now, we've been reading it, we've been singing it, and now we're going to try to dive into it. We invite you by your spirit to continue to speak to us as you have been and you are. Pray that you begin in my heart, but in each heart that is listening, Lord, in the building or watching online. We pray that it would be very personal and intimate. We thank you that the truth of Scripture never never kind of goes backward. It's still fresh and new every day. And so for some of us, we've read this stuff before or studied it before, and yet we know you have something here for us. And so we invite you to speak. We invite you to touch. We invite you more than anything to be exalted and honored. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Fifteen years ago, I had the privilege of standing on Mount Nebo, which is in the country of Jordan, southwest of the capital city of Amman. And as I stood there, you'll see a couple of pictures coming up. They're not very clear. It wasn't very clear that day. But in the first picture, you'll see the picture, you'll see a little map, and they have arrows and different communities that are pictured on that map if you gaze out and then you'll see an overall landscape that you see from that vantage point. And as I stood on Mount Nebo that day, as I looked out, you can see the whole Jordan Valley in front of you. You look, as I'm thinking about it in my mind's eye, 25 kilometers this way is the community of Jericho, which is more than 5,000 years old. You see the Mount of Olives in the distance beyond that. You see the mountains of Gilboa. When you turn more to the south and to the west, you see way out further the city of Hebron, and closer than Hebron, the Sea of Galilee. And to be honest with you, I stood there for a long time that day, looking out at the nation of Israel. It was very emotional for me, because it's basically the same view that Moses had as he stood on Mount Nebo on the day that he died. And as I stood there looking at the landscape and all the different communities that are pictured out in the distance, my mind began to run through his story and all of the different things that went on in his life. And as I thought about his life for a long time, and as we launch this new series today, we're going to start with the end. So if you have your Bible, turn with me to the book of Deuteronomy. Primarily, we're going to be living in the book of Exodus But at different points, we'll step into the book of Numbers, and we're going to start with Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy is the fifth book of the Bible, part of what's called the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. 
Deuteronomy chapter 32, beginning in verse 48. And then we're going to skip over to chapter 34, which kind of reiterates what we read there in chapter 32. Beginning in verse 48, it says, On that same day the Lord told Moses, Go up into Abiram, the range on there, to Mount Nebo in Morab, Moab, across from Jericho, and view Canaan, the land that I am giving the Israelites as their own possession. There on the mountain that you have climbed, you will die and be gathered to your people, just as your brother Aaron died on Mount Hor and was gathered to his people. This is because both of you broke faith with me in the presence of the Israelites at the waters of Meribah, Meribah Kabesh, in the desert of Zin. And because you did not hold, uphold my holiness among the Israelites, therefore you will see the land only from a distance. You will not enter the land I'm giving to the people of Israel. Then over to chapter 34, beginning in verse 1. Then Moses climbed Mount Nebo from the plains of Moab to the top of Pisgah across from Jericho. There the Lord showed him the whole land from Gilead to Dan, all of Naphtali, the territory of Ephraim and Manasseh, all the land of Judah as far as the western sea, the Negev and the whole region from the valley of Jericho, the city of Palms, as far as Zor. Then the Lord said to him, this is the land I promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob when I said, I will give it to your descendants. I will let you see it with your eyes, but you will not cross over into it. And Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in Moab, as the Lord had said. I'm guessing that Moses spent a long time staring out at the promised land, thinking about his life. He was 120 years of age at this point. Thinking about his life, reflecting back about all of the things that happened, all the different activities in his life. There's three distinct eras in his life that we're going to be looking at. Thinking about all that God had done, but also all that didn't happen that was supposed to happen. And it was a lifetime full of opportunities. Times when he said yes to God and times when he didn't. Times when the people that he led as the head leader of the nation of Israel for 40 years, where the nation said yes to God, and times when they didn't. And most of them, including Moses, missed out on going into God's promised land because of their besetting sin. You know, right now we're going through interesting times, right? Sort of unprecedented times. And I believe God is presenting incredible opportunities to us during these times. Significant opportunities. Opportunities to shine for Jesus in an increasingly broken and deeply disillusioned world. And I think he's asking us, like he asked the children of Israel, how are we going to respond? Will you step into the opportunities that I'm giving to you? And see God do incredible things like he did during that time? Or will we dissolve into, like the children of Israel did, 
with their besetting sin, a time of complaints and murmuring and missing the opportunities that God has and miss out on so much of what God wants to do. You know, one day, one day, everyone in this room and everyone that's listening is going to stand on your own version of Mount Nebo. And you're going to look back one day. What will you see? We're starting, as Marissa said, a big series in the book of Exodus, although we'll land a little bit in Numbers and today in Deuteronomy. And the title of this message, this series of messages, is When God Leads the Way. And he wants to lead the way in the wilderness that we find ourselves in right now. And the question that we'll be asking as we go through is, how are we responding? And because we're starting with the end, what we're going to do today is we're just going to look at some of the major themes in almost a survey manner of what we're going to be looking at for the next number of months. And I'm just going to ask a series of questions based on what we are going to be looking at. And I invite you to think, what might God have as we go through this series together? So the book of Genesis, which precedes Exodus, ends with one of the patriarchs, one of the head guys of Israel, a guy named Jacob. And Jacob has a large family of 70 people. And they move into the land of Egypt. And this is because one of his sons, Joseph, was betrayed by all of his other brothers. But God takes the evil that they intended. They thought about murdering him, but instead they sold him into slavery. God takes the evil that they had intended and turns it into his incredible good. That's the kind of God we serve. And if you know the story of Joseph, he goes through incredible hardship for many years, but God miraculously, miraculously brings him to the place of becoming second in command of all of Egypt. And at that time, the Pharaoh, the head guy in all of Egypt, welcomes Joseph's extended family, the 70 members of his family, into Egypt, sparing Jacob and all his kids from the famine that had overtaken the land. Over 400 years goes by. And during that time, the nation of Israel, as they're promised in Genesis chapter 12, begins to flourish like crazy. And they're multiplying and growing. And some people estimate that they were now a nation of between two and two and a half million people. Four, more than 400 years has gone by, and the current Pharaoh at that time has no memory and no recollection of all that Joseph did to spare and to save the nation of Egypt. And he looks at the children of Israel not as a blessing as God had intended, not only a blessing that God lays on them, but he wants to bless the whole world through them. He doesn't see them that way at all. He sees them as a threat. And so he starts out by brutally enslaving all these people. But they continue to flourish 
and continue to grow because God's blessing is on them as he promised. And so Pharaoh hatches a secret plan to kill all of the newborn male children. You know, when you look at our context right now, more and more in our society, our society is pushing the idea of killing the innocent. Whether they are the preborn, but now more and more and more, the people that have already had breath and are walking. And we see more of this all the time. What will you do when someone asks you to do something you know is wrong? We're going to discover in the first chapter of Exodus people that were willing to lay their life on the line when they were asked to do something they knew was wrong. Well, God thwarts Pharaoh's plan, and so he just abandons the secret element of it and openly plans to murder the newborn children. But once again, God steps in. And one of the children, one of the newborn children in chapter 2 that he saves is the person that God will ultimately use as the central figure to set his people free. We see God's sense of humor. God has an incredible sense of humor. We see God's sense of humor in chapter 2 because This person, Moses, that God is going to use, ends up being adopted by one of Pharaoh's daughters. And Pharaoh ends up paying for raising and the upkeep and the provision of the finest education at that time in the world. He pays the whole ride for Moses, who ultimately will be used by God to cause Pharaoh's complete downfall. See, when you try to mess with God... There are serious consequences. And when faith, when does faith triumph? Well, faith triumphs in the hour of greatest need. We're going to see that in chapter 2. We move into the life of Moses, and as a young man, we see the first example in his own personal life of his own personal besetting sin. Uncontrolled anger. And it costs him so much in chapter 2 and later in his life. And we're going to ask the question, do you have, do I have a besetting sin? That one sin that keeps bringing itself up in our life that we buy into over and over again. And as a result of him caving into this besetting sin, Moses ends up spending 40 years in the penalty box. But in the penalty box, he learns some lessons that you only learn in the penalty box. And with all that's going on in our world right now, it's very possible that some of the people listening to me today feel like they're in the penalty box. And the question God has for us in the penalty box is what are we learning? How are we allowing him to shape us in the penalty box? What are the opportunities in the penalty box that we would never have been able to come to grips with 18 months ago? 
It's interesting because after his time in the penalty box, when he's 80 years of age, a time when we typically in our culture consider people, well, it's time to just put your feet up. You've worked hard, you've done this, you've done that. Uh, There's not much more for you. This is the time when God taps Moses on the shoulder and says, I have a grand mission for you. And I don't care if you're 10 years old or 20 years old or 40 years old or 80 years old, God has a mission for you. Sadly, Moses' initial reaction is, who me? And he has a dialogue with God. And we're going to ask the question, how do we react when God calls us? Because he does call us, but will we listen? The big mission is to free God's people from slavery in Egypt, more than 400 years. But Pharaoh is a stubborn, stubborn guy. And he does not want to let go of this pool of 2 million plus people that he has as slaves, this huge pool of free labor. And God begins to send judgment in the form of plagues. And each time there's 10 plagues, each time for the first five plagues, God offers Pharaoh a chance to humble himself and let God's people go. And as we're going to discover, each plague is directed at one of the gods that Pharaoh is relying on. And each plague illustrates to Pharaoh that the thing he trusts about in life will let him down. And that his gods are helpless to stand against the true God of the Bible. And each time... Pharaoh hardens his heart until eventually Pharaoh's evil reaches a point of no return. Even his own advisors thinks they think he's lost it. And we're going to ask the question, do you find yourself resisting God's promptings to repent? What you're going to find when we do that is that it becomes easier and easier to resist God's promptings to repent. It becomes easier and easier each time we do it to ignore the Spirit's promptings until our hearts start to get hard. And eventually, we think to ourselves, I don't even need to repent. Even though God is willing to forgive, we're not really willing to ask because we've allowed our hearts to become hard. But the tenth plague comes. And this gets Pharaoh's attention. But even during the 10th plague, because God is incredibly merciful and compassionate and gracious, he offers a way of escape even then. But Pharaoh won't back down. And this 10th plague breaks the stubbornness of Pharaoh. And he says, that's it. Get out, take these people and leave. And so they gather what little belongings they have and they get ready to go on the journey to the land that God has promised to his people more than 400 years before that. But right after they leave, Pharaoh reneges on the deal, gathers his army together and sends them after the children of Israel in order to slaughter probably hundreds of thousands of them. And the few that he spares will be returned to slavery. 
And if you noticed on our slide that was on the screen earlier, there's two images on the screen. There's an image of fire that God uses to lead the nation at night, which direction they should go. And there's a cloud on the other side of the slide, which is the image that God uses to direct his people during the day. And he leads them, even though they see the the army approaching a huge cloud of dust. They know what's coming. They come right up to the edge of the Red Sea, and it looks hopeless. But once again, God intervenes. And he parts the Red Sea miraculously. Not 50 yards wide, not 100 yards wide, anywhere from one to three miles wide for that many people at average foot speed to go through the Red Sea. And all through the night on dry land, they go through the sea. And Pharaoh, intent on slaughtering, like I said, all of those people are enslaving them, heads his army in to follow them onto the other side, and God collapses the water and drowns them all. Miracle after miracle, provision after provision, opportunity after opportunity. And as they're on the other side, a famous song is sung. We call it the Song of the Sea, which is a song of praise. And it's very poetic, and it's sung to God, praising him for the things he's done. And we are going to ask the question then, how often do we say thank you to God? How often is our life focused on praising him as the song does, acknowledging him as king, as the God who deserves all of our praise? Acknowledging that God is king over his people and king over us. Incredibly sad. After this, after the song, after all that God has done, the story takes an incredibly sharp turn. Because this great nation that's wandering in the wilderness, in a dry and barren and thirsty land, They become hungry and thirsty, and rather than calling out to God for help, they've seen how he's provided in incredible ways, but instead their besetting sin kicks in, and they start to criticize and grumble against Moses, the leader, and against God for even rescuing them. And and it's just ludicrous. But they come up with this crazy idea, and they wish for the good old days of Egypt, And they very quickly forget that God rescued them from a place of incredible brutality and harshness that we cannot begin to imagine. And they grumble and they complain. And after a while, as we watch this besetting sin manifesting in their lives over and over again, we begin to wonder... Could the hearts of the Israelites be hardening like the heart of Pharaoh? At this point, once again, our God is just mind-bogglingly compassionate and gracious. And he moves them to Mount Sinai. And Moses, the leader, climbs Mount Sinai. The presence of God descends and he invites the people into a covenant relationship with him, which is a fulfillment of Genesis chapter 12, 
where God promised to the first patriarch, Abraham, that through him, the nation would be blessed, and through that nation, all of the world would be blessed. And God says, if you will obey the terms of the covenant, you will be blessed in this way, and you will show to all of the nations of the world what God, the God of the Bible, is really like. He gives the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20. He details then for the next seven chapters very intricately how to worship, how to practice social justice, how to live together as a people in a way that is clearly different than all of the nations around them. So they will see what the God of the Bible is really like. which is the call he has for all of us. But very quickly, and I'm afraid this is very much the case in our world too, very quickly the people break the covenant and they begin to worship and act like the nations all around them, which is exactly what we often are doing. They do it in a way that we wouldn't imagine, but actually we do it all the time. They worship a golden calf. While Moses is up on the mountain with God, they craft this idol, this golden calf, and they begin to worship it, saying, this is what saved us out of Egypt, not Jehovah Jireh, the God who provides, not the God of the Bible. And we think to ourselves, I would never worship a golden calf, but I would argue we often do. We trust, or at least we try to trust in all kinds of things other than God. We try and we make more important than God all kinds of things, and we pursue perhaps money and think, this is going to be the thing that saves me. If I can just have enough money. And we make this the priority, the golden calf of our life or power, or youth, the pursuit of youth, or celebrity, or human relationship. If I could just have a relationship with that person, I'll be fulfilled and I'll make them the priority of my life, more important than God. And the question we will ask then is, what is first in your life? Because anything that is more important to us than God is the golden calf in our life. Well, God knows what's going on as he's up with Moses, the leader, on Mount Sinai. He knows what's going on down below Sinai. And and he's deeply hurt by it. He's deeply angered by it. And he proposes to Moses that I will wipe these people out. These people that have rejected me over and over and over again, and I'll start the process over that I began with Abraham. I'll start the process over with you, Moses. And we know Moses, even though he, he, he misfired a number of times, was a deeply humble individual. And he says to God, please don't. And he stands in the gap as their leader for the people of Israel. And he prays and he says, 
God, don't do this. Remember what you promised to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob and now to us. Imagine as well, God, what all the other nations will think if you wipe them all out. Please don't do this. And God relents. And Moses prays the prayer that moves the hand of God. And God brings judgment down on the people that instigated the idolatry, but he forgives the nation as a whole. And at this point in the text, we see words describing the character of God in a way we have never seen previously in the book of Genesis. It says this, the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in covenant faithfulness. He forgives sin, but he will not leave the wicked unpunished. We continue in the story. And the complaints against Moses and his right-hand man, Aaron, and against God continue. And at some point, they come to the edge of the promised land, the land that he promised to Abraham, and now they're about to enter into. And they decide to send in 12 people to spy out and reconnoiter in the land. And they go on a journey of seven to 800 kilometers walking all around, so it's an extended time. And then they come back to report on what they see, and it's a land that is incredible in places. Some of it is very dry, but some of it is a place flowing, in their words, with milk and honey. But 10 of them come back and report to the people, we can't do it. It'll be too hard to do. We'll have to fight all these people. And some of them are way bigger in stature than us. We can't trust God. God's promised this to us, but it will be too difficult for us to do, and we shouldn't do it. But two of the spies, people named Joshua and Caleb, people of incredible courage and trust in God, said, we can do it. Yes, it's going to be very difficult. Yes, it will be an incredible challenge. Yes, it will stretch us. Yes, we're going to have to be very courageous. But we have God, and he has promised this to us, and he can do it. We have to trust him, and we have to move forward. But sadly, the people rebel against this wisdom from these two individuals. And they turn them down and they threaten to kill Joshua and Caleb, the other leaders, Moses and Aaron. And they do not take God up on his offer. And finally, after all of this, God says, that's it. This generation will go and wander in the wilderness for 40 years until all of this current generation has died off except for Caleb and Joshua. They get to go into the promised land. And the people grumble and complain. And as far as I know, during the whole 40 years, they never repent. Have you noticed, as a society, during this COVID season how generally speaking, we become quick to exhibit a critical spirit. Complaining, 
negative murmuring. I think Satan has attacked the church primarily on three fronts during these, this last year or so. The first one is that we show a marked lack of grace to one another. We're supposed to be known as people who demonstrate a really different kind of love. I think secondly, he has attacked the church through idle hands, with people having a lot more time on their hands, and we've moved from a servant posture where we're using our gifts to a more selfish one. And thirdly, I think he's attacked us on the front of biblical unity, where we put people into camps and we forget that we share with them the most important things in the world, the things we were singing about more important than anything else in this world. And even though we might disagree with them on some points, that's okay. (laughs) But we've pushed them away and not practiced biblical unity. What might we be missing that God wants us to do and to give and to be part of during this time, I believe, of great opportunity? Finally, Moses has had enough with these stubborn, stiff-necked people. And at one point, his besetting sin takes over once again. And it gets the best of him. And he lashes out at the people. He calls them a bunch of rebels. He hits a rock a few times. And in doing this as the leader, he dishonors God by putting himself in God's place and taking credit for a miracle that God did. He dishonors God and he breaks faith with him. And because he is the leader, he pays a heavy price. And God says the consequences of this is that you will not enter the promised You're going to see the mission right up until the moment when a new leader, Joshua, one of the faithful spies, will carry them with great courage into the promised land. You know, many times in this story, Moses and the people responded to the people to the opportunities, rather, that God laid out for them. They, they bought into them and they responded, but sadly, many times they didn't, and both Moses and the people paid a significant price. And I believe that as we wander in the wilderness a little bit right now, God is asking us, will you seize the opportunities that I'm laying out for you? And I'm going to provide many of them for you. Or will you be a people that dissolve into grumbling and complaining and go another way? Remember, one day, one of us will all stand on our own personal version of Mount Nebo. And we are going to look back. And what will we see?